Thank you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. As the first industrial revolution took hold in the 19th century, a group of radical English textile workers went to war against the mills that had displaced the traditional skilled artisan practice of their craft as weavers. They smashed the looms. Of course, they could not halt the march of progress, automation, new technology, machines. Today, we only know the Luddites, as the movement was called, as an epithet for those that fear and oppose new technologies. 21st century Americans have not exactly taken to smashing their phones and laptops. To the contrary, nine months of pandemic have resulted in a tighter embrace of technology, revealing just how dependent we all have become on virtual work, virtual family, and of course, virtual shopping. And it is technology that will lead us out of the pandemic wilderness, from the creation of a vaccine, computers analyzing its efficacy in record time, to the robots enabling rapid production of billions of doses and the modern logistics of delivery that will get it to us. But our relationship to technology is not entirely a love story. Perhaps familiarity breeds contempt. And just as jumping out of a perfectly good airplane is not a natural human act, neither is relating to your fellow human beings through a small plastic box. Tech makes our lives easier and more convenient, but the technology sector here in the United States and around the world faces policy headwinds on many fronts. The pandemic has accelerated the ubiquity of tech in our lives as it has revealed some of the deficiencies of the digital world to come. And as we debate the ethical use, data privacy, cybersecurity, and the inequality of access to technologies such as broadband, as a new administration and a new Congress get set to take power in Washington, if the current Congress would please wrap it up, it's a great moment to take a look at just where things stand in the tech world. That's why I'm so pleased to have one of the premier experts on tech policy here with me today to help break it all down. Jason Oxman is the president and CEO of the leading technology trade association, the Information Technology Industry Council, known to its friends as ITI. They represent nearly 70 of the world's most innovative companies in all of the policy battles surrounding the technology industry. He's worked in a number of other lesser associations, as well as for the Federal Communications Commission. And he was also, once upon a time, a professional broadcast journalist. So I'd love to know how I'm doing. Jason Oxman, welcome to 14th and G. Dean, thank you. It's great to be here with you. And you are doing so well. That was a beautiful setup. And uh, looking forward to talking about the history of textile policy alongside <laughs> these important tech policy issues. Well, thanks, Jason. I, uh, I do my best. I want to acknowledge at the outset that millions of Americans who have not had the privilege of living virtually, not just the heroic doctors and nurses on the front lines, but the store clerks, the restaurant workers, delivery drivers that have really kept the lifeblood of this country moving. But technology has enabled for everyone a kind of life in this pandemic that would not have been possible, I don't think, even 10 years ago. It's been in some ways the best of times and in some ways the worst of times for the tech industry. Jason, from your vantage point, how do you view these past nine months for the tech sector? 
Well, I certainly think, as you noted, that our ability to adapt to and eventually to recover from the pandemic is driven in large port, part by technology. Uh, you noted that there are frontline workers who we are all dependent on who are really taking their lives in their hands quite literally every day to uh, keep our economy moving, to keep our healthcare system functioning and to keep us uh, connected. But those essential frontline workers are powered by technology in many ways. And for the vast majority of Americans, certainly every American parent now knows what it's like to have school happening in their homes. Millions and millions of Americans have transitioned to living their lives digitally through work. And the technology sector plays a crucial role in making all of that possible. We've seen broadband elevated in a lot of ways from a need to have to a must have critical infrastructure as vital to our ability to live during the pandemic as water or electricity. And we've seen many other forms of technology certainly um, take the form of indispensable services as well. So from the vantage point of the technology industry, whether it's working from home, learning from home, accessing your doctor from home, engaging in e-commerce to get uh, deliveries of services and, and uh, products at home, the tech industry has certainly played a critical role. Well, looking forward a little bit, uh, ITI has just published a memo, How Digital Technology Can Empower the American Economic Recovery. You're really outlining for the incoming Biden-Harris administration your view of the tech sector's role in the recovery. What are your top-line recommendations for that role, and what do you expect to see policy-wise in a new administration and a new Congress? Well, we're certainly looking forward to working with the new administration and the new Congress on uh, these important policy issues. Look, the Biden administration's transition team has made very clear that pandemic recovery and response is at the top of the list of things that they're working on. So we've uh, ensured that our advocacy on tech policy issues is connected to that important goal. Uh, it's what the whole country, indeed the world, is focused on, and that's where we have to be uh, in the coming months. There's obviously bright light on the horizon with the approval now of two very highly effective vaccines, but we know that it's going to be many months uh, that we need to continue our work from home, learn from home uh, economy that we have here in the U.S. and around the world. So our, uh, our focus uh, is certainly on the connection between technology and the pandemic and, and even future pandemics. So three things that we focused on in this memo. Uh, one is digital infrastructure and the, and the digital divide. We know that there are millions of Americans who still lack the broadband connectivity necessary to, during this pandemic, uh, live their lives. So broadband infrastructure, digital infrastructure to close the digital divide is, is one. Two is we have an economy that has seen record numbers of uh, unemployed Americans uh, in recent months. Unemployment levels are still very high. We need to focus on education, training, investments in STEM skills, computer science education uh, at the same time that we reform high-skilled immigration to make sure that everybody is positioned for the jobs of the future. So that's our second area of focus. And our third area of focus is um, infrastructure development and digital government services, the importance of the government investing in its own infrastructure, both physical infrastructure and infrastructure security. So if we focus on those three things uh, initially, we think that's an important area for the Biden administration to be directed. 
Well, Jason, I'd ask you to drill down on one of those. The, the COVID relief bill that Congress is finalizing right now reportedly has about $7 billion in it for broadband access. Why do you think here in the second decade of the 21st century, so many Americans still don't have access to affordable, reliable broadband, especially when, as you say, it's increasingly a necessity and not just nice to have? Yeah, I think it's because we haven't updated our laws and policies and investments in the in the federal and uh, state governments in some cases in order to address the digital future that we all need to be prepared for. You know, this nation has long had a policy of ensuring that all Americans are wired to the telecommunications infrastructure. Um, since the dawn of telephony in this country, uh, we've had common carriage obligations in, in federal law that have meant that every American has access to voice telephony service, and indeed all Americans do. But at a time where most Americans are actually focused on cutting their home phone lines in favor of mobile services, we haven't really updated the laws uh, to make sure that we make the investments in what is the communications technology of today and tomorrow, and that is broadband infrastructure. So millions of Americans lack access to broadband connectivity, both wireline and wireless connectivities. Now, we've made great progress in recent years uh, investing in the backbone of 5G technology, getting more spectrum out there, getting more tower sites approved, making sure we wire uh, those towers with uh, high-speed fiber optic cable. But we really need an investment focus, a digital infrastructure focus that closes the digital divide by making high-speed wireless and broadband available to all Americans. And that is all Americans. Depending on what number you look at, there are at least 15 million American households that have no broadband connectivity at all in the U.S., and that's unacceptable. So $7 billion is a good start. Uh, We need an $80 billion commitment to broadband infrastructure funding, and uh, we need to do it quickly because this is uh, the digital divide is is the, uh, the important issue of the day. As you correctly note, it's going to require action, uh, action from uh, Congress, the president, from the government. Uh, A lot of debate surrounding not just regulating technology, but setting basic standards. ITI is itself a standard-setting body, but the European Union, they have their own privacy standard in what's known as GDPR. The EU regulates competition with their Digital Markets Act, and despite these decades of debate, The United States has been unable or at least unwilling to act in many of these policy spaces. So is the EU setting the de facto rules of the road globally for the tech sector? Well, certainly in the privacy area, they have, as you noted, GDPR, which has been on the books for literally years, is the global privacy standard. And it's it's really almost, I, I hate to say it, but it's 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 inexplicable why the United States can't get a federal privacy law on the books. We've been working on it for a long time. A lot of uh, industries, civil uh, society uh, groups have been focused on this for a long time. We need a federal privacy law in the U.S., and hopefully the next Congress and the Biden administration will focus on that. Europe did it in order to unify 27 separate country regimes that had separate privacy laws that made it impossible for consumers to understand what their rights and, and obligations were under uh, all those different country regimes. They unified it for the whole continent. We've got the same situation here in the U.S., except 50 times. Right. Uh, Uh, So we need to focus on that. And as far as other areas of digital regulation, you know, there has been a lot of uh, movement in the EU 
toward digital re- regulation. In fact, just in recent days, new legislation like the Digital Services Act draft have been unveiled. You know, we have some concerns about some of that regulation. We have some concerns about some actions that individual countries in Europe have taken on taxation that move away from uh, global regimes. We do want to make sure that we don't end up with different regional regimes of regulation. It's certainly something we're paying a lot of attention to. Yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of uh, folks would sort of think that tech sector doesn't want to any any sort of regulation, but this is really about it's about regulation, but it's really about having a standard to follow. Uh, which is really important. And as you say, got a number of states now acting uh, in the in the privacy space and in other spaces that affect the tech sector. But these are national and global technologies that that need to operate by some common standard. Well, and you see the success of those common standards in the in the wireless space. You know, we're talking about 5G deployment here in the U.S. It's here. We've got device manufacturers, Apple, Samsung, Google, that are putting uh, 5G phones on the market. We've got lots of great internationally focused and domestically focused technology companies putting out the infrastructure, the equipment uh, to power 5G networks. And 5G doesn't exist in a vacuum in any country because it is a global standard for wireless broadband services. And as we deploy 5G services in the US, we're deploying 5G services in Europe and Asia and the Americas uh, around the world. That's a great example of how technology standards when the industry rallies around them and government rallies around them so that spectrum policy support that kind of deployment. Uh, it works very well to the benefit of consumers. VHS or Betamax? <laughs> well, Betamax was the uh, was the better quality technology, but VS, VHS won the day. You remember uh, Blu-ray versus uh, HD DVD? We had that, yes. uh, that battle as well. It, it happens, but the good news is that's what's great about the technology industry. We put great technologies out there and then consumers choose what they prefer and that's the winner. Well, Jason, we're dealing with the latest in a series of hacks by foreign actors. Uh, I think we're just at the beginning of understanding what the Russians did in solar winds. But this is what foreign intelligence services have always done and always will do. So the real question is, what needs to be the American government's response to hardening our cyber defenses? And what is the tech sector's role in that response? Well, our role is going to be in supporting the U.S. government in securing its infrastructure. And this is a, uh, as you noted, perhaps the worst, uh, at least publicly disclosed, breach of government systems. And it was done by a foreign power. It's been fairly widely recognized as, as Russia. It highlights the importance of investment in IT infrastructure by the federal government. Uh, you know, the federal government obviously has its own IT to support um, as uh, a very large employer and as a, as a uh, multinational operator of, of services, but it also has to support its customers, the American people. And we've seen some really uh, troubling stories about, about the way in which foreign powers have been able to access US IT infrastructure. So that's actually one of the tenets of the advice that we've provided to the Biden administration through our recent memo is is making that investment in modernizing and improving the public sector's IT and cybersecurity, not only to protect the systems themselves, but also to improve the way in which the government provides service to its customers, the American people. That has to be uh, a uh, an early focus. Uh, you know, obviously, we're not seeing it right now, today, but we're looking forward to it um, in the Biden administration in just a few weeks. And, and uh, the president-elect has already said very clearly and very publicly that he is going to focus uh, heavily on this area. And we look forward to supporting their efforts. 
The U.S. military has a cyber command. Do you take a view on, you know, if, if we're into some sort of a cyber war on the offensive cyber capabilities of the U.S. Uh, and what that might do to deepen the split globally? We talked about common standards, but deepening that split globally, particularly when it comes to China and other foreign countries. Yeah, I think there's been a rather universal recognition. And uh, if it wasn't there, it's certainly there now with this latest Russian intrusion into U.S. government systems that cyber is a theater of war, just like land, sea, and air. And you know, we need to improve our defenses, obviously, but we also need to improve our cross-government coordination. You know, the, the nation itself doesn't have a cybersecurity official uh, that oversees the entire federal government's response. It's something that the uh, Cyber Solarium, a, a advisory group of bipartisan government officials has recommended. It's something that ITI has supported. And, and we do need to uh, not only improve our response, but also improve the way in which the federal government, which is a vast sprawling bureaucracy that tends to have individual officials in charge of cybersecurity at each agency and each branch of government, we do need to improve the way we coordinate. And having a single person in charge of those cyber defenses is is enormously important. It's something we support. Well, Jason, I have to believe you are a tech optimist, uh, that the increasing role of technology in our day-to-day lives is going to be a net positive. But how do you articulate that optimism? What do you say to Americans with concerns overall? automation, concerns for their privacy, concerns for the security of their data, and all the change uh, in, our, in our lives that comes with increasing technology. Well, Dean, let's go back to the example that you cited in your opening about the Luddite movement. The context in which um, that uh, emerged, and it it was actually a person, uh, Ned Ludd is the person after whom the Luddite movement is is named. Um, That emerged in the context of the Napoleonic Wars. There was a great amount of economic uncertainty and unemployment and upheaval in uh, in England at the time. And the uh, automated textile equipment, as you referenced, was viewed as a threat to jobs and opportunities. I think we face uh, part of that today. There's a lot of economic unheaval, uh, upheaval, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unemployment. But technology is actually the solution to it, not the problem. So my optimism uh, is uh, unrelenting. And I do believe that technology is a force for good in people's lives, not only economically, it's a force for good in that it creates good jobs. Um, It creates high paying jobs. It creates opportunities. If we make the investment in education for STEM that we need to focus on, it creates great high paying jobs. It also improves our lives in so many other ways. Uh, During the pandemic, we've seen a massive increase in the ability of people to access their doctors without leaving home because it's, it's safer that way. We've seen an enormous increase in people supporting local small businesses by ordering curbside delivery and takeout online. Uh, We've seen people shopping online. We've seen people connecting with each other online. We have the ability to send our kids to school. And I've got two kids in high school remotely from their homes on their computers uh, using broadband services, something that we can't imagine ever happening uh, prior to this time. So yes, my optimism is unrelenting. I think technology is a force for good in people's lives. And I think as we emerge from this pandemic, we'll see the positive role that technology continues to play in connecting us, in uniting us. And I'm proud to represent this most innovative of industries. Well, Jason, that is well put and well said. I don't know what exactly I would have done these last nine months without Zoom and 
my iPhone, <laughs> all the rest of it. So this brave new world uh, has just moved closer and closer, and we will sally forth. Jason Oxman, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Well, Dean, it was a pleasure to have the conversation. Thanks for all you do to bring these important issues up for people to listen to and, and, and learn from. And I appreciated the conversation very much.